Amen. Thank you, Cindy. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. I've been preaching through the end of Matthew this summer, and we come today to a message that's normally associated with Easter. In fact, probably the only time you hear this particular message preached or this passage preached is at Easter time. And so some of you are thinking, does the boy not own a calendar? My first Sunday here as pastor was uh, May of or Easter Sunday and then May of uh, 2001, and I started preaching through Matthew back then, preached through the first half. We're picking up now 15, 16 years later. But I preached an Easter message. In fact, had an Easter song in the service. And I know people are thinking, something ain't right with this boy. We're singing Christmas songs in May. Well, we're singing Easter songs in August. This message really has to do with the preparation that we're going to see God's been up to for thousands of years to bring us to the point that we're at in uh, Matthew chapter 26. In fact, what I hope you get out of this message is not just the history, and you need to get that. Sometimes we miss the profound in the familiar. So this is a familiar passage, but it's profound. And what I hope you see is not just the history of it, but also the application for us, and that is God is still in the business of preparation. What's he preparing you for? And ultimately, we just heard it sung about, we're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. And my question is, are you ready for that? How many of you watched the Olympics this past few weeks? Okay, almost everybody. If you didn't, just raise your hand then. Get a television. I realize it's in Brazil, but you can catch it on TV. One of the stories that, uh, that I love seeing, and there's so many, especially just Christian testimony throughout the Olympics, uh, but one of them was the two runners running in the, the 5,000-meter race, and I'm going to get their names, probably mispronounce their names, but the, the American runner, United States runner, is Abby D'Augustino. Does anybody know if I'm saying that even close to right? Is that right? D'Augustino. You saw the race. She and a New Zealand runner are running in this 5,000-meter, which is a 5K. It's like 3.1 miles. It's a long race. The New Zealand runner trips. The United States runner kind of tripped over her, and her testimony is her, her coach had prepared her for that moment, said, if you trip while you're running, get up, dust yourself off, take a quick look, look around, and get back in the race. She didn't do that. What did she do? She turned around to help the other woman up and said, come on, we're going to finish this race together. It turned out that D'Augustino was hurt a little worse than the other. In fact, had to have an MRI on her knee, and they had put both of them, both runners, through to the final. But she didn't get to run uh, in that because of an, of an MCL or an ACL injury. But she said in a statement in the media, although my actions were instinctual at that moment, the only way I can and have rationalized it, it is this. God prepared my heart to respond that way. This whole time here, he's made me clear to my, to, he's made that clear to me and that my experience in Rio was going to be about more than my race performance. And as soon as Nikki and I got up, I knew that was it. God, she believes, God had prepared her her whole life for a moment like that. And think about it, the testimony to the world of her Christian faith and why she did what she did. Well, how about you? What's God been preparing you your whole life for? And really, what's God been at work to bring about in history so that you're here at this time in history? Let's take a look at the passage. This is... Matthew 26, beginning in verse 17, I'll read through verse 
29. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is going is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The first thought is this, the preparation for the Passover. The preparation for the Passover. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on Sunday. The triumphal entry, the crowds have swollen. There's millions of people there for the Passover celebration. And they've cried out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And now he spent the middle part of the week, some scholars think Tuesday, others think Wednesday, preaching in the temple precincts. And that's what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. And now we get this private moment with his disciples. This was now Thursday. And they say to him, Teacher, where are we going to prepare to eat the Passover? In fact, it says the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a festival attached to the Passover. The Passover was a one-day event, but then it continued for seven more days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they really became synonymous with one another. So the disciples came and said, Where are we going to eat this Passover together? Well, let me just remind you, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 12 is the institution of the Passover. It's when it's instituted in history. The children of Israel are captives, slaves in Egypt. Moses has been sent to take the people of God out of Egypt. One problem, Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. So they had a series of plagues, ten of them. And in chapter 12, it's unpacked, these words. Now, you can read the fuller thing, but I want you to get the significance of what's about to take place in this passage based on what's been taking place for hundreds of years, and that is the celebration of the Passover. God told Moses on the tenth day of the month, select a lamb for each household. In fact, we know that if your household had at least ten people in it, then you got one lamb. If you didn't have ten people, then join up with another household. So between ten to twenty people, if you had more than twenty people, you had to get two lambs. It would be an unblemished male, a year old. It could come from the sheep or the goats of your flock. And then on the 14th day, kill it between 3 and 5 p.m. Put some blood on the doorpost and the lentils of the house. And then you're to eat the meat roasted with fire. And you're to eat with unleavened bread. Eat it all. If anything's left over, burn it. There's no leftovers. Eat with your loins girded, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. Eat 
quickly in haste. What was this all a picture of? These people were fixing to have to get out in a hurry. The other houses that didn't have the blood applied to the doorpost and lintel, God was going to take the firstborn, both human and beast, from that household. The last plague, it was horrible. And yet the children of Israel were spared. Why? Because they were obedient? Yes. But also the blood, which would become a symbol for them, a reminder to them, pointing towards the blood of Christ, ultimately, that was going to be poured out on the cross. So when we think about the Passover, what the disciples are saying is, where are we going to celebrate this meal that our families have celebrated for hundreds of years? Jesus had, I would think, had celebrated the Passover with his disciples before this day. But certainly he's celebrating it today. And how significant in this passage. And so Jesus says, go into the city. In fact, we don't know this from Matthew, but if you read Mark and Luke's account, he, he selects uh, Peter and John and says, go to a certain man. It's interesting, the word certain man literally means go to Mr. So-and-so. Now, again, in Matthew, we're thinking, how are you going to know you got the right guy? Well, in Luke's gospel, it says you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher. That was not a domestic activity that typically that men did. So it might have been the only guy carrying one and probably a servant of the household because in those Gospels, we're reminded, we're told the rest of the story, and that is, go with that man. Say to that man, my master needs to use your house for his disciples to celebrate the Passover, but it says, go with him and then say to the head of the household, my master has need of this house, and the preparations will be made. Why so mysterious? I think there's one very good reason why it was done that way. Judas. If Jesus had said, we're going to 1st and Main Street, and we're going to have the Passover in Mr. Jones' house, then Judas would have known that's where it's going to take place, and we probably wouldn't have had the Passover and the, the commencement of the Lord's Supper. And so Jesus doesn't want the traitor to know the plans. He wants to keep the traitor guessing. So he simply pulls Peter and John aside and said, okay, go into the town and take care of this now they had to have already had a lamb and if you think about it if the lamb is is bought four days before the passover what day was the lamb acquired sunday the day they entered the temple precincts the day they enter into jerusalem they would have had to select a lamb and by mosaic law the lamb stayed with you for four days and then you killed the lamb between 3 and 5 in the afternoon. In fact, you took the lamb and only two people could go into the temple precincts. Otherwise, it would become incredibly crowded. I don't get how they did this anyway. It's estimated that on that day, 250,000 lambs would have been put to death. And they estimate over 2 million Jews would have been in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. I do know that they dug trenches into the stone so the blood could flow out of the temple into the Kidron Valley. Think about... Just how awesome, audacious that would be that all of this has taken place on the day ultimately that Jesus is arrested and ultimately crucified. So he says, tell him my time is near. I'm going to keep the Passover at your house. And so the disciples did as Jesus directed. That's the preparation for the Passover. But I think in order for us to understand the true preparation, this had been going on for hundreds of years. What's the purpose of it? In fact, as part of the Passover celebration, they had four cups that would be shared. They still used the unleavened bread, which was a reminder. We didn't have time for the bread to rise, but also we were getting all the yeast and all the leaven out of Egypt. And so we're, we're leaving with these flat cakes of bread 
And so every year they celebrated the Passover by getting all the leaven out of the house and reminding, remembering what God had done in their life, how he had rescued him. In fact, part of the Passover meal, one of the sons would say, Dad, what is this all about? Now, he hopefully had heard it the year before, but he was instructed to ask it again, and the dad would remind them, the reason we're eating this lamb is because in Egypt, part of the tenth plague was that children were killed, animals were killed, but our families were spared because we placed the blood of that animal on the doorpost and lintel. And the kids would have heard that year after year after year and knew what it was about, at least knew the history of it. But what it all pointed to was what Jesus was about to do on the cross. And so God has been at work preparing for the Passover for hundreds of years. But then there's also a preparation for his betrayal. When evening comes, they're reclining at the table. Now, apparently the Passover had gotten a little more casual. Because the first Passover, they sounds like they ate standing up. You get your shoes on, get your loins girded, have a staff in your hand. Eat in a hurry because this is a picture of what's about to happen. You're about to leave Egypt in a hurry. But now they're reclining at a table. And as they were eating, and I want you to think about that. They've begun this Passover celebration. They're eating, and the one who's going to betray Jesus is sitting there eating with the rest of the disciples. I mean, think of the treachery that's involved in Judas's heart. He's already made plans with the Jewish officials. He's already received his payment to betray Jesus, and he's sitting right there. And while they're eating, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Wow. Jesus had told them three times what was going to happen. And he got a little more detailed each time. But toward the end here, just the last few chapters, as they've approached Jerusalem, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be turned over to the chief priest, and ultimately to the Roman authorities, and I'm going to be put to death. But I will rise on the third day. And I think all the disciples ever heard was, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Because it became real personal for them, because they're thinking, well, we're going to die too. I don't think they heard him say, but I'm going to rise from the dead. I don't think they got it even when this is happening. Even after he rises from the dead, some of them didn't believe it. Well, now Jesus unpacks just a little bit more of the story, and that is, not only am I going to be betrayed, but it's one of you. Well, Matt, put yourself in their position. You're sitting there eating the Passover. You're celebrating this meal that they've celebrated for hundreds of years throughout generations. You've celebrated this since you were a young boy. And now a bombshell gets dropped. One of you is going to betray me. Now, wouldn't you be thinking, well, I know it's not me. So what are you doing? You're looking at the rest of them. There's 13 guys in the room, and two of them are not going to betray Jesus. Jesus and me. (laughs) And so they start asking the question, Surely it is not I, Lord. And 11 disciples ask, Surely it is not I, Lord. The word Lord means supreme in authority. Judas, if you notice, doesn't speak up right away. And see, I think they say, Surely it is not I, More so for this, they knew they weren't the one, but they wanted everybody else to know. They wanted Jesus to say, yes, not you. (laughs) By process of elimination, it's not any of you 11. Don't want to say his name. (laughs) In fact, the disciples asked him, who is it? And he said, it's the one who's dipped his hand in the bowl with me. 
Now, this bowl was a name that I can't pronounce. It's a Hebrew word. But I believe each person would have had their own bowl. They would dip the bitter herbs in it. They would dip the bread in it. And so I don't know that there would ever be a reason for somebody else to be dipping in your bowl. But Jesus is going to indicate who it was by dipping in the bowl and giving it and allowing Judas to dip in his bowl. And so while this is happening, Jesus says, The one who will betray me, the Son of Man, is to go just as it is written of him. Jesus is saying to Judas, but really the rest of them, What's about to happen has not caught me off guard. This isn't part of his plan. This is part of the plan of God. He's an instrument in God's plan. His heart has turned away from me. But woe to that man. The fact he's being used by God here does not hold him guiltless. He is guilty because he has chosen to disobey God. He's chosen to betray the Son of God, the Savior. And woe to that man. In fact, it would be better if he had never been born. His future in hell is so terrifying that it would have been better off for him if he had never been born. And then verse 25, Judas finally speaks up. He says, surely not I, Rabbi. Do you notice the distinction in the word difference? The other 11 say, surely not I, Lord, Master, Ruler, Supreme in Authority. Judas says, surely not I, teacher. And I don't know if that distinction was obvious to them, but it's obvious to us now reading it all of these years later. And what has Jesus said? You've said it yourself. In other words, out of your own mouth, you've condemned yourself. We know from the other accounts that Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And even though it's not clear, it's very possible that Judas gets up at this moment because when he does leave, the other gospel accounts tell us that they just assume because he kept the money that Jesus had given him some personal instructions of things he needed to go buy. And so most of the other disciples didn't figure out that he was leaving for that reason. But if so, if he already left and he's not there for the institution of the Lord's Supper that's about to take place, but it's really unclear. He may have been there through all of that as well. But after Jesus has had that conversation with him, we get to the preparation for the sacrifice. And this is the main point. Again, continuing while they're eating, you think they're still eating. Yeah, this was a long deal. There were four cups that were used. There was bread. There was lamb. There was significance in each element. There were bitter herbs. There was significance while they were still eating. Most scholars think they were probably at the third cup, which was the cup of blessing, the cup of redemption. When Jesus takes the very elements of the, Lord's, of, the, of the Passover meal and now institutes the Lord's Supper that we celebrate to this day. He took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it. Why did he break it? I've said it myself before and I've heard preachers say, you know, this is my body broken for you. Jesus didn't say that. In fact, the truth is Jesus' Jesus's body was not broken in the sense none of his bones were broken. It was broken in the sense that his, pierced, his flesh was pierced. But all Jesus says is he breaks it. I think he does that just so he can distribute it. In fact, part of the Passover would be two cakes or two pieces of bread were taken. One was broken and placed on top of the other one. 
So that's, Jesus is using some of these same elements, but he said, you've been celebrating this for hundreds of years. Now he said, this is my body. And he distributes it, and they partake of the bread. And then he had taken the cup. Again, probably the third cup, the cup of blessing, the, the cup of promise that God had said, I will redeem you, and I will be your God. And he gave thanks. Isn't that interesting? He blessed and gave thanks for the bread. He blesses and giving thanks for the wine. And all the while, he's got to be thinking, this is a picture for them of what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to be crucified on the cross. And even before that, I'm going to be beaten. There are going to be stripes on my back. And my blood is going to be spilled, both by a crown of thorns and nails in my hands and my feet, and ultimately by a spear in my side. The disciples didn't know that. They didn't get that. But as Jesus has given thanks for that, he's literally thanking God for his sovereign plan that's at work of what is about to happen. This is my blood of, a, of the covenant. The old covenant was sealed with blood of animals. You've got to understand something. The blood of animals were used as part of the Day of Atonement. They could never remove sin. They just kind of covered sin. What Jesus was about to do with his shed blood would remove sin. Ultimately, once and for all, forgiveness of sin. This is my blood poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. You and I struggle with the word forgive because we can't forget. But when God forgives, the word literally means to send away. Isn't that great? That God would take our sin and not just put a blanket over it, but He sends it away. You and I can't do that. And you and I struggle if we forgive somebody to ever send it away. But God can, and He chooses to do that. And it's because of the blood of Christ. And then listen to this promise. I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you, new, fresh, in the kingdom of my Father. Think about that. This may be the only message you've ever heard preached from this passage where we didn't partake of the elements. But when you do that at your church, what's that all about? I grew up in a church as a little kid, and I'd walk into the back. I grew up in Macon, Georgia. I walked into the back, and when I saw that table at the front with the white linen cloth on it, I knew, oh, this is when they're passing out the juice and the bread. And until I came to faith in Christ, I just kind of passed it along to my parents. And once I became a Christian, I was able to participate in that. But quite often, it became too routine. It became normal and so my encouragement to you is this. In fact, we're not going to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following, just four principles from that. As Paul reminds the people about how to take it right, how to do this remembrance right, because Jesus said, as often as you do this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. So the first thing is, it's for us. Jesus isn't doing it anymore. He will afresh with us in the kingdom but we're to do it often, and when we do it, we remember His death on the cross. It's for us. Secondly, we continue to observe and remember until He returns. So until Jesus comes back, until we see Him face to face, we continue to celebrate this 
Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted on this night. And by doing it, third thing is, we proclaim His death until He comes. It's a testimony, a reminder, body, blood, forgiveness. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, do not take it in an unworthy manner. At least two things that means. Number one, don't take it as being meaningless. Don't ever participate in it where you're not really focused on what it's really all about. Where you haven't taken time through worship and through prayer to be ready to receive these elements that are so significant. But even Paul said, don't receive it in, without self-examination. God, am, am I your child? Can I take this as a believer? And Lord, is there anything between me and you right now that I need to get right? Because this is about forgiveness. God, is there anything that I just need to be forgiven for? And my last thought for you this morning is this. Are you ready for the celebration? Here's what's going to happen. We're going to continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper until He returns, but we're ultimately going to celebrate it with Him anew in the kingdom of heaven. Are you ready for that? Well, one way you're ready for that is you've got to be a child of God. If you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're ready from that standpoint. Revelation 19, verse 9, calls this the marriage feast of the Lamb. I served on staff of a church in Gastonia. There's some Gastonia people here this morning. They're going to know who I'm talking about. My secretary asked me one day, she said, is there going to be food in heaven? I said, well, apparently, because there's going to be a marriage feast of the Lamb. And she went, oh. I said, what's wrong? She said, my kids don't like lamb. <laughs> Jesus is the lamb. I don't know what we're going to have to eat. But I know that we're going to celebrate this remembrance for the last time when it comes to full fulfillment. See, the Jews have been celebrating for hundreds of years. Now we've been celebrating for thousands of years the Lord's Supper. For the Jews, it was a Passover celebration that pointed towards. For us, it's a remembrance that looks back at the finished work of Christ on the cross. But here's another thing I want you to think about the next time the elements are passed or you come to the front at your church to receive those elements. This is just the foretaste of celebrating it ultimately with Jesus in heaven. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, just an understanding of, yeah, Lord, there's history involved here. There's significance in the symbols. And God, don't let us get caught just in the history, just the head knowledge. But God, apply it to our heart today. And the question is, are we ready? Because there's coming a day when we're going to see you face to face. And it's going to be celebrated with Jesus. Thank you for the significance of it. Thank you for his body that went to the cross. Thank you for his blood that was spilled. God, apply that to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.